Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to uh, welcome you back to the program. We have Juan Villasmil rejoining uh, us here on the show. And uh, Juan, this is this this isn't your first time on the program, correct? No. Okay, I was going to say I, <laughs> I've slept since the last time we talked, and so it's very possible I forget. But for the sake of those who are meeting you for the first time, take just a second here. Tell our, our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. So my name's Juan Pablo Villasmil. You can call me JP. I write about American culture, foreign policy, especially Latin America a lot recently, and Gen C specific issues. You've got a fantastic article in Newsweek about a divide that I've seen for quite some time in the Republican Party, and that's over foreign policy. And your article is actually titled, Sorry Neocons, Republican Voters Are Done With Your Foreign Policy. And I'm very interested to, to hear your take on uh, where that shift has taken place and, and how this might even affect you know the, the 2024 election, uh, for that matter. Talk to me a little bit about... Uh, Republican foreign policy and where does that split come from and, and and where did it what what has led us to the point where we are right now? Yes, of course. So um, Republican foreign policy for the last decades, um, especially because of figures like Henry Kissinger, who rest in peace, um, has been has been informed by a, a, a view of America as the world leader and dividing the world into enemies and allies. And during the Cold War, primarily, we saw that that frame of view skyrocket. Uh, other leaders, though, took different approaches. Uh, Nixon, for instance, he greatly changed foreign policy orthodoxies six decades ago. But since him, no other president really challenged the way we we approach foreign policy in 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 not in the sense of 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 like policy but looking at the world since Trump. Trump was the one of the, the first leaders that got into power and refused to talk about the world as enemies or allies. He started talking about concrete national interests, not just about the free world, but about, hey, our allies are not doing the right thing here. I don't care if you're my ally. We need you to catch up. We need you to work more. And if an enemy is doing something, traditional enemy, again, is doing something that we don't like, what can we do to alter that behavior? Are we just going to scream at you? So it, it's a, it's a, a, a really, a really innovative turn that Republican foreign policy took, out of nowhere, really, because the, the Trump foreign policy view penetrated the party, and now it's overwhelmingly popular among GOP voters. But the GOP establishment, though. It's not really sympathetic with the Trump worldview yet. They they adapted when he was in power, but now that he's out, they see a they see an opening to reintroduce their traditional foreign policy views. And my perspective is is that although they're trying really hard, the GOP base is already deeply against their worldviews. So I doubt that it's going to change. But if it does. 
it'll be really surprising. You know, I I grew up in a Republican home, and uh, Ronald Reagan was the first, you know, president, Republican president I cast a vote for. I remember that, uh, you know, being strong on the world stage and having a, you know, powerful military presence really was kind of the hallmark of, of most Republican presidents. I mean, George W. Bush took that, actually, I thought, too far. That was a turning point for me where I went, oh, I'm not so sure we're the good guy here. This is like a, a cop who goes around nightsticking the troublemakers, you know, in a bar, um, and eventually... If you do that long enough, you're going to find yourself in a fight that you cannot handle. I think Pat Buchanan actually warned about that when he ran for president in 2000. But you're right. Most presidents up until Trump seem to toe that very same line. Um, The only exception I can see where Trump, I think, kind of kept things going was the um, drone strike on the Iranian general. um, I'm not even sure if I say his name correctly, Soleimani, um, which, you know, they said it was a matter of national security. But generally, it seemed like things were, it was a more peaceful approach during Trump's presidency than than what we have seen under previous Republican presidents and certainly what we've seen uh, under the current president. Yes, indeed. Uh, The Trump presidency was, at the same time, although he, he spoke like an isolationist often, and he made a lot of people preoccupied, especially those who are sympathetic with the view that I criticize in my article, But Trump's still pretty unique in the sense that what defined his foreign policy was uncertainty. And in a way, that was kind of a superpower because whatever you think about how that translates into domestic politics, maybe it's not good. But at least in foreign policy alone, it was quite interesting because you would see Trump just bombing, uh, (laughs) killing, destroying, and then say, we don't want to destroy. <laughs> uh, you would see Trump threatening, uh, but then saying, we don't want to get into conflict. And interestingly, he managed to not get the U.S. into another war during his presidency. And he made a lot of progress in the Middle East. Uh, he made a lot of progress in many parts of the world. And that uncertainty certainly helped. But it's... Uh, It's one of those things that it's like a sophisticated argument that you can make to justify uh, Trump's uh, craziness and speech sometimes. Nonetheless, it's a a valid point. I think uh, it's it's Victor Davis Hanson at the Hoover Institution. He makes that point in a really sophisticated manner. And it's, it's somewhat true in my eyes. You mentioned that you talked to uh, Blaze TV host uh, Steve Deese, and Steve made one of the most, uh, um, I thought, profound statements here just a few months ago, um, and and this was this was over Ukraine particularly. But he was like, "You are not going to take my kids over there to fight for Ukraine," and, and I thought, "Wow, this is you know." This is somebody drawing a line, and I assume he's, he's you know, leaning on kind of the, the Trump policy here. Um, talk to me about uh, the establishment Republicans seem to be kind of in lockstep with the establishment Democrats as far as, you know, we need to project power far and wide, military bases everywhere. What's the balance between being isolationist and, you know, like, like North Korea, that's an isolationist country to me, versus minding our own business? Do, do you see any countries that would be a shining example of what that looks like? Yes. Um, so first, first of all, in regard to uh, the little talk that I had with Steve Deese, it was awesome. What I found interesting about it, though, 
is that although he's really close with the DeSantis campaign, that the DeSantis campaign staffers didn't talk like him. Mm. When I asked Steve Deese about Ukraine, he was really quick at saying we shouldn't be supporting them that much. There's no way they're going to win against Russia. This is delusional. Uh, he called it a globalist scam uh, at some point. But when I asked uh, DeSantis's press secretary and his senior advice for the same question, <laughs> they didn't say the same. In regard to specific country, though, I it's hard to pinpoint. I, I think actually foundational America at the very beginning uh, had a... Uh, the right principles. Alexander Hamilton had the right foreign policy views. And to some degree, Jacksonian foreign policy also emphasized concrete national interests. Uh, so that's good. I don't like the, 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 the dichotomy between isolationist and interventionist. I know it's like a term that people use a lot, but I'm a realist. And sometimes the, the good thing to do is to isolate. And sometimes it is to intervene. But in the last years, we've been naturally inclined at intervening and intervening and intervening. It's not smart. Yeah, at some point, there we get to diminishing returns. And, and I'm not so sure we haven't reached that point already. And, and I don't mean any disrespect to, to you know, the service members who go in in good faith. Hey, we want to defend you know, the United States and, and defend her interests. But sometimes it just feels like... Uh, they're the muscle by which our foreign policy is implemented or carried out, and it doesn't matter what you know other countries think. Um, and I'm not sure that that makes us safer in the long run. Um, just we, we've got about 30 seconds left here. If people want to become better informed on foreign policy and get a broader view, what do you, what kind of things do you recommend that they read? Are there good journals that they can turn to to get a clear picture? I mean, you should go. You should go to my Twitter. I don't have a lot of followers yet. <laughs> All right, let's it's boost real, those numbers. <laughs> real JP Millisville, B I L L A S M I L. Uh, but you should also read, you know, different perspectives. Foreign Policy Magazine, Foreign Affairs Magazine, The Spectator World also has a lot of articles. I'm working for them now, so that's a sh shout out. Uh, but. Most importantly, though, I would recommend the national interest. They have a lot of different perspectives. And when you're trying to balance out the globalism with some concrete national interest, then <laughs> that's one of the magazines I go to. JP, we're up against the clock here. Thank you so much, though. I appreciate your take on this. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Sophia Hamilton back to the show. Uh, Sophia, good to see you once again. I probably won't get the chance to wish you happy holidays uh, afterwards, but happy holidays to you. Thank you so much for having me on again, Brian, and happy holidays to you as well. For those who are, are hearing you for the first time, take just a moment to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, so I am a research associate here in Washington, D.C. at a think tank, and I'm also a contributor and social mobility fellow with Young Voices. I focus on issues related to healthcare, drugs, housing, and welfare. And so I'll be talking a little bit about um, tobacco policies today and how it relates to um, California, because that's one of my hit pieces. We've talked, in fact, you and I have talked about uh, tobacco policies and, and, you know, efforts to get people to stop smoking. And California, I thought, has been pretty stringent. But then 
A few months ago, it seems like I heard New Zealand passed a law that was pretty much going to end smoking for anyone born after 2009. Tell me a little bit about that policy and then tell me about why they're walking it back now. Yeah, so back in um, 2022, the prime minister at the time in New Zealand was Jacinda Ardern. She passed legislation to ban um, any any individual born after 2008 from buying smoked tobacco products. So they their goal there was to create an entirely smoke-free generation. And that really influenced similar legislation. We saw this year getting promoted in Britain. It looks like that's going to be passed in Britain. And then also a similar ban was introduced through legislation in California, and that was in early 2023. So that bill was introduced by a new assembly member, assembly member Damon Connolly. It didn't see success, but it was very worrisome that a lot of world leaders were following the footsteps of New Zealand. It ended up being a very influential policy. Now, going to your point of it being walked back, New Zealand saw a new prime minister come in this year, Chris Luxon, and he has shocked the nation by walking back this ban. So he had a lot of concerns about the economic implications that a ban like this would have, and then also the freedom implications that it would have by banning an entire generation from buying this tobacco product. So I'm hoping that this walk back of the tobacco legislation will be prompting other world leaders like in Britain and in California to take similar steps in the future and not go after these very harsh total bans on tobacco. I love that you pointed out in your article that uh, Prime Minister Luxon had some very grave concerns about, look, if you do a ban like this, Basically, you're opening the door for the for the greatest black market ever, which is kind of the lesson of prohibition, I think, on, on a number of subjects. You prohibit something, if people want it bad enough, they're going to find a way. Exactly. You, we saw that in the United States with alcohol prohibition, and that ended up not working out. Um, even in recent times, there's some very interesting studies looking at Massachusetts. Massachusetts passed a ban on menthol cigarettes, which I have a lot of issues with, um, but they thought that that would bring down smoking rates of certain minority groups. And so after this ban was passed, I think 2010s era, there were some studies looking at, did the rate of smoking go down in Massachusetts? And they found, no, it didn't. It actually increased and it specifically increased in those minority groups that they were trying to target this legislation to decrease their smoking rates. And we also saw that the sale of menthol cigarettes in surrounding states of Massachusetts increased because individuals were driving into those states to buy the products in larger quantities to either create personal stockpiles for themselves since they couldn't buy them easily in Massachusetts or to redistribute to their neighbors, other people in their community on the black market. So there's similar concerns of this happening in New Zealand. I think New Zealand may be a bit harder because they're an island nation. I'm not super sure of their trade policies, (laughs) um, but that could definitely still occur in New Zealand and it can definitely occur in California. It'd be a very similar situation as Massachusetts. And there's even the worry of cigarettes coming over the border from Mexico. So you got to keep that in mind that there's a lot of 
moving parts here in the United States, and it could lead to an even trickier situation than in New Zealand. Tell me about what's happening at the federal level. I know California has been you know, pretty eager to step up and lead out on this, but are there stirrings at the federal level about banning particular types of cigarettes or, or you know, the menthol cigarettes and so forth? Oh, yes. Um, the FDA has been getting involved at the federal level. So they've um, proposed two rules, which I think are very troublesome. Um, they haven't been approved yet, but they're in the process of being approved by um, the OMB. And so the first rule is to ban menthol cigarettes. So following in the footsteps of Massachusetts and several other states, and then also setting maximum nicotine levels. You know, the, the research on the maximum nicotine levels is inconclusive. Some people argue that if you set maximum nicotine levels at a lower level, that people will become less addicted to cigarettes. But there's also the worry that then people will smoke more cigarettes to get more nicotine in their systems. And so cigarettes have less nicotine. And then that would be even greater health issues with smoking more in that inhalation. So the FDA is really trying to make these rules. Science isn't really backing it, especially on the menthol cigarette bans. And so we're slowly following in the footsteps on even on the federal level um, as the UK, Britain, and on old New Zealand before this walk back of the legislation. Well, I, you know, and I don't think anybody's arguing, no, 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 cigarettes are good for you. I give my kids two of them every morning for breakfast. You know, We're not saying that. I mean, I think we any adult can recognize there, there are health risks, but it still comes down to, as you point out, there, there are some decisions we really need to make for ourselves. Now, informed decisions might just prompt some people to say, I'd rather, I'd rather not go that route, as opposed to, well, if I do that, you know, I could be in, in trouble. Yeah, so I have to laugh because I'm myself not a smoker. I've never smoked a cigarette. I don't use nicotine. But just like alcohol, it's a personal decision as to whether I want to use that substance. I think the information should be out there on the health risks. T children, teenagers should be learning about the health risks of these products. But total bans aren't going to work and they're only going to be bringing in more harm to individuals. I detail the harms that black markets can bring in my article in the Orange County Register and it's even more worrisome. We've even seen that with the FDA's ban and their attack on Juul, um, an electronic cigarette and, and yep. a vape brought in more harmful vape products into the market. Now you're seeing all these teenagers, instead of using a Juul, using disposable vape products, which are not FDA approved, and they come into the market illegally through China. So I'd rather have people make informed decisions for their own health rather than have bans and then black markets. And you, it's definitely- You mentioned too, even, even the cartels in Mexico see a money-making opportunity. Oh, well, they can't get it there. Hmm, <laughs> you know, dollar signs pop up. Um, Sophia, exactly. We're, we're up against the clock here, but uh, for people who want to follow your work, particularly on, on this subject, what's the best place to follow you? Yeah, the best place is Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Sophie Hamilton, and I'm constantly tweeting about tobacco policies, tweeting out my other work, and just following the news on these. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Brian.
And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Ben Ayanian back to the program. He's a Young Voices contributor. And Ben, I know there are some folks hearing you for the first time. Tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me back on. Um, I'm a Young Voices contributor, like Brian said. I, I write about uh, different topics in the news from a pro-liberty standpoint, um, and I'm getting ready to go to law school next year. So that's uh, where a lot of my time has been spent. And that will be a worthwhile investment of time based on some of the stuff I'm seeing. Uh, we, we need good people out there representing us legally. I, I love your article in the Washington Examiner about uh, the bipartisan move to weapons federal bureaucracies. And, and you make a very keen observation here. Who says Democrats and Republicans can't work together? The trouble is what they're working together on is usually not in our best interest. Talk to me about what's happening with these, these federal agencies and, or bureaucracies and, and how they're being weaponized. Yeah, we always talk about how Democrats and Republicans uh, can't get anything done together. Well, uh, look no further than uh, Richard Durbin and Roger Marshall uh, in the Senate. They've been working together now on the Credit Card Competition Act, uh, which was reintroduced in June. Um, it, it aims to cap the interchange fees that merchants are charged when people like you and me go uh, buy goods or services with our credit cards. Um, and after the airline industry came out against their bill uh, because it actually put um, you know airline rewards programs at risk, which I can get to uh, in a second here, um, they came out against this bill for that reason. And now Durbin and Marshall are petitioning agencies of the federal government uh, to look into uh, the practices of airlines' rewards. Um, want they want them to be micromanaged? Um, they wow. they're claiming that they're engaging in deceptive and dishonest practices. Um, but it it really came right after the airline industry spoke out against their bill. Uh, so it's pretty clear that that they're going after them for that. That definitely sounds like a solution looking for a problem. No, no I, absolutely. Um, so to talk a little bit about how the Credit Card Competition Act would put these rewards at risk um, so that, you know, listeners can understand that the airline industry has has something has a point here. Um, so, you know, these fees that, you know, banks and uh, payment networks collect, they helped fund rewards programs that uh, credit card users, you know, you get as part of um, part of their contracts on these cards and they also help fund uh, data protection um, for consumers as well and so this um, bill puts the revenue um, that these entities collect from these fees at risk and so that will hamstring the funding for credit cards rewards programs and you know some of uh, the biggest rewards programs are, are are airline rewards you know a lot of people have uh, co-branded credit cards you know where they haven't uh, you know they could get for example an American Airlines uh, credit card through uh, Citibank um, and MasterCard and so um, the airline industry um, was like, hey, you know, you guys are putting our rewards at risk. And the senators unfortunately turned around and said, you know what, we're going to we're going to petition federal agencies to start looking into your practices a little bit more because we don't like what you're saying about our bill. Wow. 
Not good. I mean, because this is not the only place where I think we were seeing a, a weaponization of of agencies. And look, I'm I'm not carrying water for for Donald Trump or even for you know the January sixth uh, protesters. But it's pretty clear that you know Grandma carrying a flag walking through the Capitol um, is, is more likely to face jail time and probably has faced jail time than the people who were burning the country down. You know, through that that awful summer of uh, 2020 in the the Black Lives Matters. Right? riots. Yeah, I think that we, we see across the country the weaponization of, of uh, federal bureaucracy. I, I think that's a bipartisan issue. You know, whether Republicans or Democrats are in power, they're going to use these agencies that don't have a lot of oversight to help their friends and punish their enemies. And I think um, it's really sad, sad to see, you know, across the political spectrum, um, regardless of, of the, the example that that we want to use. Um, we, we see it all the time. It, it really just now seems to be getting the attention that it deserves um, in at least specific circles. Um, mainstream media still um, won't won't touch on that too often. Um, and I think that one of the biggest problems is that Congress needs to uh, needs to regain their power. You know, they they have created all these federal bureaucracies. They've they've been very deferential uh, to the president, um, the executive branch. You know, over the years. And I I think um, you know the best solution. To all of this harassment um, that happens, you know, throughout uh, the the regimes of Democrats or Republicans, uh, you know, the best solution is Congress actually regaining their power because they're beholden to voters. They have to then pass, you know, laws. They can't outsource it all to to these federal bureaucracies. Wow. We can't uh, we can't take our eyes off these guys for a minute, <laughs> or or they're they're going to uh, slip out of their leash and and uh, start running around doing mischief. Um, are there any meaningful ways that that are being undertaken to to rein in some of these bureaucracies? Because it doesn't matter who's elected or who isn't reelected. It seems like the the bureaucracies remain. They're they're almost election proof. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely you could find individuals, um, you know, running for office, for example, who will speak out uh, against, you know, these bureaucracies. Uh, one candidate, you know, uh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, for example, a big mm -hmm. part of his campaign has been, um, you know, advocating for the reduction in government, says he wants to, you know, fire a large percentage of of government bureaucrats if he were elected. Um, you can find people in Congress who who speak out against these bureaucracies. Uh, if you remember, um, Rand. Paul was a big, yep. um, you know, in uh, opponent of the CDC and the FTA throughout the the COVID, um, you know, crisis. And so, I think that you can find some individuals who are willing to stand up and speak out against these uh, bureaucracies. But I'm not seeing, um, you know, strong momentum, um, you know, a lot of cohesion across really either party for. For as a whole, advocating for reining in these bureaucracies, you could find Republicans attacking the FBI right now, and that's because the FBI has been going after Donald Trump. But you're not going to hear a lot of Republicans saying, "Okay, but we also need to um, rein in, you know, the CDC, the FDA, the you know, the uh, DOT, you know, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau." You just you're not you're not hearing it a lot, um, and that's something that I think voters need to start you know, picking up their phones and talking to their representatives about that, you know, they, they, uh, these bureaucracies infringe upon our freedoms. They, uh, they harass their opponents and whether you're a Democrat or Republican that we shouldn't uh, be rooting for that. 
I, I'm curious, is there a backbone, though, among enough members of Congress to, to stand up to these agencies? Because it seems like um, when they talk about, well, we may have to, uh, you know, start closing down or, or uh, doing away with certain agencies. Oh, boy. The, you know, the knives come out and people circle the wagons and um, to say they get defensive isn't isn't even right. I mean, they, they go on the offense uh, against those who would would limit government in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you know, the, it's hard uh, for people in government to say, I want to reduce the power and, and size of, of government. We don't see that a whole lot, even though Republicans like to, to pay um, you know, uh, homage to that idea sometimes, at least rhetorically. Uh, they, once they get in office, they don't like to do it. And also, um, you know, if you're in Congress, whether a senator or a representative, without these bureaucracies, you would have to do arguably a lot more work um, instead of getting to outsource a lot of decision making and discussion to these bureaucracies. And so I'm sure a lot of um, politicians don't want to have to do all that work. Well, it's something we'll definitely want to keep an eye on. And I'm curious if it'll become a talking point, you know, for the upcoming election in 2024. Um, you know, you mentioned Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, he se- he seems to be treading more boldly than, than most when it comes to you know talking about these kinds of things. Again, we're talking with Ben Ayanian. Uh, ben, where can people follow you? What's the best place to find you on social media? Yeah, you guys can follow me on Twitter um, at Benjamin Ianian or on Instagram at Ianian13. Very good. Great to catch up with you. By the way, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Looking forward to talking yeah, with to you. To you again. as well. It was great catching up with you today. Thank you. Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices, our final segment today. Hey, we are happy to be talking with Sarah Anderson. She is a Young Voices contributor. And Sarah, for those who are getting to hear you for the very first time, take a moment, would you, and tell us just about a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do. Sure, Brian. Well, thanks so much for having me back on the show. Like you said, my name is Sarah Anderson, and I am the Associate Director of Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties at the R Street Institute. R Street, for anyone unfamiliar, is a right-of-center limited government think tank. We do research on a number of different policy areas, and the one that I get the honor of working on is criminal justice, so I'm glad to be here. All right, and actually, I was really happy I read your article in The Hill about how the Senate should codify, not reject, the CARES Act's home confinement policy. Now, I have looked for a long time <laughs> to find any positive aspect of the uh, the federal COVID response, um, including the CARES Act. This was one I was not aware of. For the sake of those hearing about this part of the CARES Act, what exactly was the home confinement policy that they put in place? Sure. Well, of course, as we all know, the CARES Act was the large federal piece of legislation passed by Congress in March of 2020 in the effort of a federal response to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, among that was a provision in the CARES Act, like you said, one of the very few good things to come out of the pandemic policies of our federal government um, that was put in place in an effort to make prisons less crowded, so therefore more safe for both the people 
people incarcerated there, but especially also for the folks that have the essential job of working in prisons, that they have a lower likelihood of contracting the virus and therefore bringing it home to their families and others in the community. Um, what that policy did was just allow the Department of Justice and the Attorney General, which at the time, of course, we know was Bill Barr, um, under the Trump administration, to remove the lowest of lowest of low risk people in the federal prison system who have served more than, I believe it was 50 or 60% of their sentence um, and meet all of the lowest risk factors, including being a nonviolent offender, to transfer them, not end their sentence, but simply transfer them to home confinement, which is, of course, a pretty uh, intensely surveilled form of custody still under the federal prison system. And so under this provision, there were about 13,000 individuals who were sent to home confinement. Most of those people have since completed the remainder of their sentence because, again, they had to have served most of it already anyway. And that was, of course, three years ago. Um, and those folks who were sent home actually have a less than 0.2% recidivism rate, which means wow. that only 27 out of the 13,000 people released committed any new crime in the past three years. Of course, that would be a violation of their conditions of home confinement, and those people would have already been returned to brick and mortar custody under the federal government. So right now, it leaves only about 3,000 people who are still on home confinement as a result of this policy. That's astonishing. I. I, I'm I'm actually you know kind of kind of surprised and relieved to hear 99.8 percent of the people who were sent to home confinement completed their sentencing or or did did not reoffend. Um, so why why the move to to uh, rescind this policy? Why would they why would they want to take this away if if it's something that that lowers the crowding in the prisons and at the same time isn't resulting in in a greater uh, rate of recidivism? Right. That's absolutely right. And we know that the federal government's own self-reported recidivism rate for everybody else in their population is around 43 yeah. percent. So that points this population at about one two hundredth of the typical recidivism rate, which is just a massive success. So you're right. It definitely begs the question, why is there an effort to do this? Well, a simple answer is that, of course, we know that the CARES Act provisions were meant to stay in place while the COVID pandemic was still ongoing and while particularly the emergency order was still in place. Now that emergency order, President Biden ended in May of this year. Um, and so what that means is that many of these provisions have expired. Um, however, it's a bit unclear in, it's unclear or just not completely laid out in the CARES Act what would happen to these folks who have been moved to home confinement. In fact, there is nothing, though, in the CARES Act that says these people need to be returned to brick-and-mortar custody should the um, emergency order end. Um, therefore, the default, in my view, should be that these folks get to stay home um, because, of course, we know it's working. It obviously also costs much more money to put somebody back in brick-and-mortar custody. It's around $40,000 a year to incarcerate somebody federally as opposed to a dramatically less number. I think they've projected that keeping these folks home as opposed to putting them back in would save taxpayers $80 million. And again, these are people who are not showing any indication of going to reoffend. Plus, they've been living a productive, law-abiding life for three years now at home. Um, so there's some concerns about executive overreach in terms of continuing a policy that is meant to have expired previously. However, I would argue it's not meant to have expired because, again, there is nothing in the CARES Act that even says these people must go back. Um, but the other aspect of this 
Brian, is look, if there's a successful policy that, again, Congress created this policy three years ago and it's found to be massively successful, there's no reason to get rid of it. In fact, the Senate and the rest of Congress, the House as well, should look to codify and expand this type of policy that obviously works. Um, I think that's the right way to go. Unfortunately, um, there are a couple of senators and a couple of representatives who have introduced legislation um, under the Congressional Review Act that would undo the rule that confirms that these folks are allowed to stay home. Again, unclear even in that case, if these people would have to go back, that would probably be fought out in the courts. But it just doesn't make any sense to want to end a policy that so obviously works. And if the concern is executive overreach, then codify the policy that Congress created initially. Don't get rid of it. Sarah, something that kind of jumped out at me, and I was a little bit surprised because I hadn't considered this, but um, those inmates who were, were sent to home confinement, that didn't mean that they were sentenced to sit on the couch and watch Netflix you know, eight hours a day. They could actually, That's right. they, I mean, they could work jobs. Look, I work from home. Plenty of people work from home. Um, they have a chance to actually be productive and, and contribute as opposed to, you know, taking up space in an institution that requires guards and maintenance and systems and resources, like you mentioned, to the tune of $40,000 a year per inmate. Yeah, that's exactly right. And especially we have research upon research upon research that shows that returning people to prison in this type of condition would actually increase their likelihood of reoffending down the line, which is something that obviously they have not done to this point which obviously is bad for public safety. You know, if we have individuals who've demonstrated they're able to be law abiding, able to gain employment, able to keep stable housing outside of a brick and mortar custody, the legal system just really needs to support that. Um, otherwise we risk really undoing a lot of the progress that those folks have made, especially in the past three years toward rehabilitation. It jeopardizes the supports they've established outside of prison. And it obviously makes it more difficult for them to reenter and reintegrate in the future. And then the other aspect of course, is it undermines legitimacy of the system. If people feel like they've done everything in their possible power to comply with the law. We're given no indication when they were released that they may ever have to go back into, into brick and mortar custody. What does that say about our system? What does it say about the integrity and legitimacy? And of course, we don't want people questioning the legitimacy of our justice system. No. So I have to ask who, who pushes back the hardest against keeping this policy in, in place? I, I'm just, are there special interests? Is it just particular uh, politicians? And I, I'm curious who's pushing back and, and what their reasoning right. is. It's difficult to say exactly what their reasoning is. Obviously we've seen an increase in crime in the past couple of years as compared to pre COVID. And so it could be just a knee jerk response to hey, these are people who have violated the law, who are people we could possibly reincarcerate, so let's do it. I don't think that's a very good solution. Um, the resolution in the Senate is led by Senator Marsha Blackburn. It's SJ Res 47, and there's a House resolution led by Representative Paul Gosar, and that's HJ Res 97. And uh, Senator Blackburn actually just put on Twitter yesterday that she believes we should, quote, put violent criminals back behind bars um, in the context of this. Obviously, we know, and it's been uh, discussed over and over again in rulemakings and, you know, material from the DOJ that none of these people were violent. So I think it's an effort to play into the narrative that we need to be tough on crime. But of course, actually putting these people back in 
would be soft on crime and prevent public safety. So we need to go against what she's trying to do there. Boy, this could open up a whole new fascinating discussion, too, on our incarceration rate, you know, versus other countries and so forth. Uh, last I'd heard, and I could be wrong on this, but uh, the U.S. has has a pretty high percentage rate of its population incarcerated compared to, to even countries that we would think are much more harsh, you know, say, for instance, China. Again, percentage-wise, it seems like we put a lot of people behind bars. That's right. I think the number is something like the U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its incarcerated population. Of course, we don't know how other countries are reporting on this. Um, but yes, we do incarcerate at a massively high level when oftentimes we don't need to, and it's counterproductive to public safety. So when these resolutions, if they come up for votes, um, they definitely should not pass. The Biden administration has admission, uh, administered a statement of administrative policy that the president would veto this legislation as he should, because of course it's good policy. So we're hoping the folks in Congress get their heads on straight on this and um, act with facts, not out of fear and go ahead and keep this policy in place or codify and expand it for the future, because obviously it works. Okay, we're talking with Sarah Anderson. She's Associate Director of the Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties Program at the R Street Institute, as well as a contributor for Young Voices. Sarah, where can people find you on social media? Sure. Well, definitely you can follow the R Street Institute on social media at RSI. We're also at rstreet.org. And through that, you can find my information, my page and my social media. It's a handle that I will not even attempt to uh, spell out in letters, unfortunately, so as it happens. Um, but definitely go ahead and look up rstreet.org and at RSI on Twitter and you'll find all of our information and find me as well.